but just specifically, like, you know, I just needed to hear that. Thank you. Let's open up our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. want to continue on, and uh, just to reiterate the apology, what's going on with your, is that tears right there? Oh, Dito. Hey, man, poor thing, you know. <laughs> God bless you. I just want to stay with um, the theme from last week's apology, which was I pretty much broke every preacher's rule. I let my uh, emotions get caught up in the situation, preach too long, um, caused you guys, I guess, to miss a quiz. <laughs> so forgive me. We're trying to help you out there. But we do have permission to do that on spiritual emphasis times, and we've never really taken those. So, you know, they can give us a break every now and then because Chancellor said that we should be able to take off uh, parts of our classes to have extended chapels. But um, just wanted to, to let you know that my heart is totally in a better place. I am, like, so right with God right now. I, mean, I don't want to be prideful, but I just feel so right with God. Of course, I made it right that night, but just coming here today, it's totally different. People are all good. And the goal is to just to be done at 1230 so you guys get that break between classes because then I know that you guys get to enjoy the rest of the day. Amen? Because that break helps you out. And I really believe I can do it. And I believe I was going to do it last week. This wasn't that situation. You know, I believe I was going to do it. Okay, so today we got it. We're going to have a good time. Amen? Okay, so we're going through the book of Corinthians. You guys have got your thinking caps on, Bible in front of you, notes. You're going to help me preach. Amen? Okay, so that's all that I ask you. Just follow along and really let this be poured into the book of Corinthians. It's an awesome book. Chapter 2, verse 1. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not, might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Everybody say, God's power. Thank you. Now, when you go back into chapter 1, we see that God's power is primarily Christ and then Christ and the cross. And where we can see this is uh, up in chapter 1, looking at verse 24. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So Christ is the power of God. And And then when you move up a bit further, you go into... Chapter uh, 1, verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So when Paul said that he came in power in demonstration so that people would not rest uh, their faith upon his words, but upon Christ's power, the power he's referring to there is the cross and Jesus himself. Now, what comes from the cross and Jesus himself, the signs, wonders, and miracles, amen? So it's not just saying he just showed up like an old-time revivalist preacher and just talked about Jesus and the cross. No, he showed up, talked about Jesus and the cross, and he said, you want to see something really cool? Uh, because of Jesus and the cross, you're going to get healed right now. You're going to get set free. We're going to get sister so-and-so out of the wheelchair right now. We're going to prophesy because Jesus gives us power through himself by his cross, 
So we want to preach like Paul. That's what we're learning about the Corinthian church. We want our churches in order like Paul. And as I was reading ahead, I just snapped on two blogs. And so I've already blogged ahead in Corinthians, uh, like six signs of a prideful church. And I think uh, you were one of the only three people who probably read that blog. And then right after that was another blog of uh, six types of Christians uh, not to hang out with. And it's quote unquote Christians because I went to 1 Corinthians 5. I mean, it just snapped in me. And I think that, well, I believe, I know, because we can see it in Paul's own words here, that this is all the power of God. So it is signs and wonders and miracles, but it's also, you know, putting things in order, rebuking people, rebuking the church. That's all the power of God, because he says later on in chapter 5, he says, I'm going to come to you and see you, and do you want me to come to you in gentleness, or do you want me to come to you with a whip? You know, that's the power of God right there. He says, because I want to see if these people are just talking or what power they really have. We all have the opportunity to work in this power. Paul is not trying to say that he's the only one that can have this power. He's actually being the example and the demonstrator of the power. So the power of God is Jesus. The power of God is the cross. The power of God is demonstrated through signs, signs, wonders, and miracles, and it's also demonstrated through the entire letter, the rest of his letter. It's demonstrated and rebuked. You know, the word of God is profitable for teaching, preaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped. So all of that is the power of God. Amen? So let's look at these verses. When I came to you, brothers, you know, the word of Dalfoy, brothers, he considers them his family. That's where it comes from in the church, calling each other brothers and sisters. Jesus says, who is my mother, brother, and sister, those who do the will of God? I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. Once again, why would he have to explain this? Because during the time of the Roman Empire in you know, the first century here, the Greek philosophers were being taught everywhere in the uh, epicenters and in the high, uh, high schools, in the college, in the college setting. The, these uh, Greeks were actually establishing what would become lecture and memorization tests, a re- recitation, r- r- reciting back. They were actually founding the college, the collegiate system then, and Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, Epicurus, a lot of these philosophers were always being taught. Paul is specifically saying, I am not coming as an eloquent orator. I didn't stand like on a special podium, have like this wonderful like uh, toga or type of outfit on, take a posture like these philosophers would, and then just speak these eloquent things almost where it's like poetry, where a lot of the philosophies of that day almost just sounded like poetry. As a matter of fact, when Paul was in uh, Mars Hill there in Athens, he says, I'm quoting one of your uh, poets, one of your philosophers, because they were hand in hand. Poets and philosophers were very similar together, and that's when he said, we are all his offspring, the offspring of God, and that uh, he said God has placed us in different places that we would all seek him out. Well, he quotes him there, and then later on he says, the altar to the unknown God. Well, there's a story, and I believe it is Epicurus, who had the uh, the, the altar there and had also made that poetic statement that we're all the offspring of God. What Paul is saying is I don't come to you and do this. And as a matter of fact, at that point of uh, him being in Athens, when they accuse him and they say this man is like a, uh, let's go there, Acts chapter 18, and I want to um, show you the exact, what is it? Thank you, Acts 17, my Bible scholar in the house. You know, we might have to have our little Bible competitions here. Let's give it up for Pastor Mike Pilecki of NCCC, North Corner Community Church, launching in a couple weeks. Uh, Acts chapter 17, let's go there. At the end, uh, they call him 
something, and I want you to hear the words, and I want to actually get it for you in the Greek. They interrupt him while he's talking about God's divine judgment. That pretty much um, gets them upset. Here we go, down into verse, um, verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And at that, Paul left the council. Now, when it says that some of them uh, sneered at him, they were basically mocking him because he had gotten out of a flow of what they would have expected to be like philosophical. He just, you know, he was talking about, you know, their poet, you know, we're God's offspring and we all come from one person and like this statue to the unknown God who has a whole story behind that, by the way, of when they couldn't uh, cure a sickness by sacrificing to their gods. That poet, I believe his name is Epicurus, who had spoken about we're all the offspring of God. He had said none of these gods can be the right God. Let's claim our ignorance, sacrifice to an unknown God, and maybe that God will have mercy on us. And when the disease went away, they said in honor of this God who we don't know who he is we're just going to make an altar to the unknown God but by the time of Paul it was forgotten they had gone back to worshiping all the other gods so Paul is talking about you know we're God's offspring he's quoting that poet he then looks to this altar he says now I'm going to proclaim to you who he is and at that point you know these philosophers they're kind of going along with it but when he gets to the point says and Jesus came died buried was rose again from the dead and he's going to judge all of you at a resurrection that's when they sneered well, going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he's saying, and don't turn there yet, but he's saying, I didn't come with eloquence or superior wisdom. See, he didn't try to convince them of the resurrection by using more philosophy. He just kind of drew them in a little bit, and then he went right to what the gospel was. And that's a good lesson for us today. See, when we're preaching, uh, I, I don't want to say we, but let's say it's the larger body, because we are not going to do this here, amen? But when you hear preaching in the modern church, it almost looks like the outside Bible points, the, the videos they show, the illustration, that's the main thing, and it's like the Bible is just used to back that up. It's in total the opposite way. See, Paul, he just, you know, two sentences, two sentences to make a point, a bridge, and then goes on preaching the gospel. For us, uh, once again, us being qualified outside of here because we're being taught different, it seems like the modern-day church, let's, let's qualify it that way, the modern-day church spends 20 minutes showing you Oprah Winfrey shows, a, a movie clip from Saving Private Ryan, and then just, just taglines that scripture at the end. How opposite of Paul. See, Paul said, I'm not trying to come in men's wisdom. I'm not trying to come in eloquence. I'm coming in the power of God. I'm coming preaching the gospel of Christ and the power of the cross, which is foolishness both to the Greek and to the Jew. The Jew, he demands signs. And this in and of itself is not a good enough sign for him because it's the defeat of his Messiah. He doesn't see it as the resurrection. And then to the Greek who claims for wisdom to be presented in this equation, it's not wise enough because it seems stupid. Why doesn't Hercules just come down and defeat everything? Why don't we see this big, powerful God? Why is he born in a manger, not worshipped as a king here, and then he dies and then just disappears. Our Greek mythology is better than this. So it's a stumbling block to both of them. One, they want signs and wonders. The other one wants wisdom. But Paul says, no, I'm just coming, preaching Christ and him crucified. And then you look back up to uh, uh, Acts chapter 17, and uh, Epicurean, a group of Epicureans and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him, and they said, what is this babbler trying to say? And that's the word I wanted you guys to see in the Greek, word babbler. I can't remember it off the top of my mind, but uh, I'm pretty sure I remember the definition.
but just give me a moment to uh, to get you the word here so I can give it to you exactamundo. Amen. Come on. Let me try right here. Let's go vain babbler. Okay. Exactly. Oh, I love this. Look at this. Okay. So the Greek word is a huge word. Spermologos. That's not too hard, I guess. Spermologos looked a lot bigger than the original Greek. Everybody say spermologos. Do you want to know actually what this means, babbler in the Greek? It means a picker of ideas and bringing them back to people without any ingenuity. The actual understanding here is that they are a scavenger, scavenger of ideas. The Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were upset with him because he didn't have anything that would have come just from himself. What they criticized him for was actually his boast in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Because he didn't come to try to invent a message. He didn't come to try to give to them something that he would take credit for. Remember, the philosophers were known for their own inventive ideas. They were saying, this guy is just a babbler. He's just repeating that same message of Jesus. We, we don't want to hear that thing of Jesus again. We want to hear a new thing. And isn't that the temptation today in modern churches? Oh, we've already heard the cross. Well, we're, that sin thing, we've already got it down. Now, razzle and dazzle us with some new ideas. Be all creative and inventive and make up new things that we've never even heard before. But tag Jesus on the end of it. And that's where you get into all this false doctrine and all this teaching and even development of cults. You know, Mormonism and all this, this wild theology. Because people don't want to preach sound doctrine anymore. They don't want to be just accused of preaching the same old, same old. And I was even thinking about this myself personally in ministry. You know, I make YouTube videos and different things. And, uh, you know, I'll spend some time. And I remember when Rob Bell came out with that book about hell and, and you know, he's just a heretic and all this phony baloney. I knew he was a heretic when he denied the virgin birth, by the way. And it was funny when some of my friends were following him back then in those NUMA videos. And then they saw John Piper refute him and all of this. And then they go, dude, you were right. And I was saying, you know how I knew he was a heretic before? Because he said the virgin birth was an important doctrine, that we, it was an open-handed doctrine. Listen to me, my friends, if you don't have the virgin birth, you don't have a Messiah and a sacrificial, uh, a sacrificial death. You don't have the blameless, spotless lamb that purifies sin. It all rises and falls on, the, on the, uh, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Amen? The hypostatic union. But anyways, so, you know, I you know, made this video about hell. I mean, I took my time. I'm talking good theology. I got the Greek at the bottom. I mean, I'm doing this whole thing. You know how many times it gets viewed? What? 20, 30 times? And I'm thinking to myself, here this heretic repackages old heresy but makes it new, takes credit for it, and just millions and millions of people just drooling over his books. Oh, you're so deep. You're so awesome. Oh, I want to watch all your videos. And all it is is a bunch of nonsense. And yet pastors like, and I'm not the only one. You know, I could just name pastors all day long. Pastor Grogan, Brother Anthony. How come nobody's watching his videos? How come nobody's reading his books? You know why? Because of this day and age, it's a stumbling block. All you are is just a babbler. You're just telling us what we already know. Heaven, hell, Jesus, the cross. We want to hear something else. Our ears are itching. We want to hear something else. 
my friends, let that criticism be our compliment. Amen? Let that criticism be what fuels us to keep preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Going back here to chapter 2 of Corinthians. He said, when I came to you, brothers, I didn't come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony of, about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So what should we choose to do when we preach? Forget all that we know and preach Christ and him crucified. What a testimony that Paul, a Ph.D. in the Jewish religion, would do this. And even like I said, when he went to the philosophers, even then when he just wanted to appease them for a moment to make a bridge, he did it in just a small way, and they still called him just a babbler. It shows that his modus operandi, his operation, the way he always was in his, the mode of his operation was to say, I'm not even going to try to convince you of this without the Scriptures. It is the Scripture. The Scriptures prove what I'm telling you, and Jesus Christ is the center of those Scriptures. Now, in verse 3, you notice something so unique about him. This can be an encouragement to so many of us who deal with this even to this day. He said, I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. You know, how many times have we, you know, us now, we've become to become comfortable with preaching, and we don't have the fear of God anymore. And yet he always uh, looked at it in such a way where he would not rely upon his flesh, but upon the Spirit, and it made him weak and fearful that he would go against God. And um, sometimes we look at this like a bad thing, but this is actually a good thing. This is a sign of his humility, his brokenness before God, that he wasn't trying to come up as the Donald Trump before the self-help seminar and just prove to you a couple things that worked and wanted to sell you a book in the back called Seven Steps to Your Best Light Now. He wanted to come before you and hide behind the cross and for you to even see him in the preaching of the message of somebody that still needs the cross. I would hope that you would say about Pastor Joe, he still needs the cross. Some of the old-time preachers, the way that they worked around this in their heart to keep themselves humble is they wouldn't preach with notes. That they would study themselves full and preach themselves empty. Charles Finney and John Wesley are two of the most famous preachers that would not preach with notes. But when you see their sermons that have been recorded, they're all in point format. They weren't just rambling on, you know, some aimless thing. But they had all of these points because they had trained their heart and spirit in study of the Bible. That when God could use them in the public preaching, God could use their brilliant minds to formulate these messages. But all different. Dependent upon the Spirit. All dependent. You read Charles Finney's messages. Sometimes they have 16, 18 points. And he taught himself and other preachers to not come with any notes prepared. But just to study. Just to study. And when you'd come before God, now it's like, okay, God, what are we talking about? And then he would say God would give him the message, and he would have studied these things throughout the week. Obviously, God is taking from the reservoirs of his study. You, you get studying yourself full, preaching yourself empty. This is not what some do today, laziness. When you're unprepared, it dishonors and disgraces God. You should be weak and fearful in another way. But this is the way some preachers have humbled themselves, and I myself have even taken on this technique at different times, as I do with you now exegetically through uh, Corinthians, and then now going into September for, for this month, no series, 
and so you guys can remember there's times when we do that, so that there's no message prepared until I come so that God can enable me to do it. Now, exegetical, it's much easier because I'm pretty much running through like a commentary and just letting the Lord give insight through experience, and I've prayed on these passages already. But there is a fear and a trembling when I show up on a Sunday and I have no message prepared, and it's God, give me that message. Now, of course, sometimes when I'm in the back, there will be a few little notes so that I can keep those thoughts in order. But sometimes it's literally just coming up, preaching a subject. I also like to do this when I travel overseas, and they bring me to the different village churches, and I uh, put Adam on the spot as well. It's just, you know, preach what's in your heart. You know, you have so much in you. You know, preach on evangelism and talk about the Great Commission and Acts and the power of the Spirit, or talk about the gifts of the Spirit. It's not as hard as you think, but it does place you in a dependent spot. Another... um, uh, um, interpretation of this weakness and fear and trembling is the very fact that he was under the pains of persecution wherever he went. And so what he was speaking was 100% vile propaganda and illegal indoctr- indoctrination to the Greek, uh, uh, to the Roman citizens. And so he's coming like, dear God, am I going to get arrested today? You know, some people interpret it this way. Is this going to be my message that provokes another riot and I get brought before the people and somebody gets beat up? And, you know, is this like with Jason there in the, in the Bible and he gets beat up? So One of the ways is to say he was just so dependent upon God that he was just in fear and trembling to do anything outside of what God was going to say, or he was dealing with the thoughts of persecution and suffering. Maybe it's a combination of both. Amen? Number four, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith may not rest on men's wisdom but on God's power. Now, this does not mean that he did not have wise and persuasive words. This does not mean he spoke stu- like stupidity, with stupidity, in unconvincing language. Like, blah, blah, blah. you know, he didn't come up and just act like a re-re, okay? But what he is saying is when he came to preach, it wasn't to try to have a mental debate with the people. Now, does this contradict what we hear of the stories of him going to the synagogue and having debates and Apollos being a great debater and eloquent in speech and, and Stephen debating with the Jews? That's exactly what got him killed. No, they did debate. They engaged in debate. Debate was healthy among them. Even among themselves, they debated. And we see this worked out through church history and councils and in the letters that they would write. Many times they are debating. As a matter of fact, uh, in his letter to Romans, he takes on some... Um, hyperbole, and he takes on some questions that people are saying like, uh, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? And uh, he says, no, he is engaging in a debate with already uh, false accusations. Are you with me? But when he preached, I would differentiate that from his teaching. When he would preach, when he would say, this is the message, there wasn't a debate. Are you understanding? Whether it was in the marketplace, whether it was he took a different posture, we don't know how it looked then. For us, it would be when I debated the Muslim, I'm sitting down, I'm discussing, we're considering, but you put me in Pakistan in front of a crusade, there's no more debate, shikaboomba, Jesus Christ is Lord, this is the gospel. And so I believe he himself was engaging in that. He had these moments where he would teach, where he would engage the thoughts and wise, persuasive words. He would use that for the benefit of helping show people that Jesus is the Christ. 
Apollos did this, helping prove from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. I know you know what's there, but let me just give you a couple of the, the times that he did debate so you can put it in context because we are a church that does believe in public debate and apologia, the defense of the faith. Amen? Uh, Acts chapter 18, verse 28, for he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. He publicly and vigorously. Now, who is this talking about? This is talking about Apollos. So would he have said to Apollos, you're doing something wrong? No, we believe that Apollos was trained under Priscilla, Aquila, eventually. You know, he came under them, and he was under the ministry of Paul as well. And also, we see that Paul debated in Acts chapter 9, verse 29. He debated and talked with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. And then this is where the Jehovah Witness says, we're not going to debate you because you're going to try to kill us. And then we say, shame on you for being such a coward. The Bible says the lake of fire has a place for cowards and for liars. Amen. So you've just want, you just went into two categories there. Amen. You're a coward and you are a liar. He still debated under the pains of death. So don't use that as an excuse. Well, they may kill me if I debate. No, you stand up, speak the word of God, amen? And you do it in the face of opposition. Do not be a coward and do not be a liar, amen? We do not have a place for cowards and liars because their place is in the lake of fire. Praise God. Aren't you glad you came to chapel today? Amen. So going back to that passage here where he's saying that uh, he's not coming with these persuasive words or that he's not coming in this eloquent of speech, what he is saying is when I'm preaching the message of the gospel, and how do we, uh, how do we know that, that, that he engaged in both? is because we look back at Acts, there was times of discussion and debate, and there were other times just this is the gospel. Amen? But the most important thing that we see here is that he preached it not only with words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. The Spirit's power can be seen there in many different ways. The Spirit's power can be referenced back to John 14 through 16. He shall come and convict the world of sin, guilt, and of righteousness. And we can see that when the gospel preaching, Christ and him crucified, is coming forth, the power of God convicts, convicts men of their sins. Amen? At the same time, we look at Mark chapter 16 and through the book of Acts, Cornelius' house with Peter uh, and the other people that, uh, you know, preaching the gospel, Philip in Samaria. We see signs and wonders following as well as in Paul's life. So we can look at the Spirit's power being that convicting force in people's lives. We could call this the Billy Graham style of evangelism. He's preaching. The gospel is there. The Spirit is in power. Amen? And then we can also look at the Reinhard Bonnke power of evangelism. It's the same thing. The power of the gospel is coming forward. Christ and crucified is being exalted. Hearts are being convicted. And then the dead are being raised. Sick are being healed. Prophecies are going forth. And all of this is demonstrating the power of God. Amen? Do you want half of a cookie or the whole cookie? Come on. Do you want to ride a tricycle or get in a NASCAR? Amen? Do you want to be with Orville Wright in the little, you know, the little plane that they made or you want to be in an F-22? Come on, somebody. Praise God. I want all of the Spirit's power. And the Bible says to earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. What book is that in where it says earnestly desire the spiritual gifts? Wow, isn't that a correlation to what he's saying right now? 
He understood that the gifts of the Spirit were like tools in his bag that he could use for every situation. Just as we were learning today in our mission class, watching just at the end with some of the free time we had as we closed out a little bit earlier, Reinhard Bonnke saying that uh, he doesn't have to boast and say, I have the gift of healing. All he needs to do is when someone is sick, pull out the gift of healing and apply it at that time. We don't have to worry, are these gifts all with me now? Where are they? I can't feel them. We need to be confident that whenever we face a problem, God's spiritual answer is the gift through us. Prophecy at the time in the need of prophecy. Uh, gifts and uh, uh, tongues, you know, tongues, gifts of healing and tongues, interpretation of tongues. When we need them, God will give them to each man according to as he wills. Amen? And so I believe that the Spirit's power was the convicting and the demonstration of the signs and wonders. Why? Because of verse 5. So that your faith, your pistis, your, your trust and hope might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. At the end of the day, if you have been talked into something, you can be talked out of something. If Paul was convincing and talking them into this, the next slick uh, uh, philosopher could come and talk them out. And as a matter of fact, that's what they did in that day. They would say, well, I'm of Epicurus. Well, I'm of uh, the Stoics. Well, I'm of uh, Aristotle. Well, I'm of Socrates. And they would always compete. And, and within one man, he might have had four or five conversions to their different camps. It doesn't that sound familiar to what he had said in chapter 1? Apollos, one says I'm with Christ, one says, he's, that's not what it's supposed to be. We're all resting our hopes on Christ. So it wasn't going to be, I'm with Paul because Paul is so persuasive. No, I'm with the God of Paul. I'm with the Jesus that Paul preaches because the power of Jesus is so awesome. The faith that we have in God is not just on mere words. It is on his power. Studying um, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the greatest uh, power seen among this earth, Jesus Christ being crucified for sins, being raised from the dead. Even other dead raisings can't compare with this because there was uh, no one to pray or bones to touch, like even, you know, with the bones touching, I think it was Elijah's bone, the man raised from the dead. This was himself saying, I lay my life down and I take it up myself. Think about the power of the resurrection. Of course, it was by the Father's will through the instrument of the Holy Spirit, but Jesus said, I lay it down and I take it back up. When you study the power of the resurrection, all of our hopes, all of our hopes for salvation, forgiveness of sin, rest on the power of the resurrection. And you read later on in Philippians, uh, Paul talking about this. He says, I have counted everything but done that I may know Christ, him crucified, and the power of his resurrection. The resurrection is probably the most attested, verifiable miracle of all the Bible. Thus, out of all history, then, because we believe the Bible to be true and other things not to be. The Bible speaks about the resurrection of Christ being witnessed by Roman soldiers, women, then eventually 500 people. Now, I don't have time to get into the actual crucifixion. Some of the Muslims believe that either his identity was swapped, somebody was made to look like him, and he was crucified in Jesus' place, and then Jesus just simply appeared to the disciples and said, here I am, and they thought he was raised from the dead. But then that would make Jesus a charlatan because he allowed them to go on propagating a resurrection. And, of course, this would, uh, 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 you know, 
take away all the value of the New Testament, him talking about the cross and the Son of Man being lifted up and all of these things, and him being handed over and destroying this body in three days and I'll rise it up again. It makes no sense out of the Bible, basically. Amen? That's why we're not Muslims. Amen? Praise God. Uh, the other way is also taken by secular scholars. Muslims love it because Muslims love atheistic arguments. If you've ever noticed this little side note, Muslims and communists, Muslims and atheists, they love each other. Even in the United Nations, Muslim nations join together with the communist nations and come against the free world and come against Israel. They still do this to this day. Muslims love taking atheistic arguments, and Muslims love this argument of what is called the swoon theory, which is Jesus was uh, basically crucified and beaten within an inch of his life, put into the, uh, the chambers, but wasn't really dead. And so, therefore, he could come out and say, here I am, you know, I have been raised from the dead. That would be pretty hard for the, uh, the disciples to be happy about that with his face all bloodied, beard torn out, missing teeth, black and blue eye, pierced on his side. You get what I'm saying? You're raised from the dead. If that's how we're all getting raised, I'm not happy with that. I'm not, I'm not sure I'm following that, right? But we look at the resurrection, and there are so many key things in here. I wish I just had time to talk about them. And I will take my wife's advice today and simply only talk on one section. She said, don't force the chapter and keep us here till 4 in the afternoon. So I will stay just within five verses today, and we'll close on the resurrection of Jesus. As a matter of fact, uh, Adam, will you grab my Islam book right there? Uh, I believe I could give most of them to you by memory, amen, and be dependent upon the Lord, but I'm afraid. I would embarrass myself, so I still have to rely upon something written right now. Amen. Is that okay? But I, as I'm turning here, I want you to understand that the crucifixion itself is verifiable that he was dead when he got there for a few different reasons. Number one, uh, the Romans were a professional torturers, and when they were, sent, when they were uh, sentenced to death and to kill somebody, they always did their job. There's only one time in history where uh, someone was reported to have survived a crucifixion, and that was because they did not receive the death blow. They did not receive the death blow. And it's recorded in the Bible that each one of them received the death blow in a different way. When the other ones had not died and they were still struggling and living, the thieves, they came and they busted out their knees so that now they would suffocate on their blood and have a heart attack and not be able to breathe and the heart would explode, okay? And then when they came to Jesus, they were about ready to break his bones, but so that prophecy would, would stand true, none of his bones were broken. They said, well, he kind of looks dead right now, so let us test him with the spear. And that was a death blow going right into his side. And the doctors say that if a man is dead, water and blood will come gushing out, and a man cannot live after such a blow upwards into this part of his body. Are you listening to me? So he was killed. The second thing that we know is that he was killed is that because he was placed in a stone that was sealed. And that sealed stone was by the Roman government. And they never would have allowed anybody that they even thought could resuscitate to be placed in there. And then two Roman guards were placed in front of that. And so this shows that they were not fearing that he would swoon, that he would come back to life. What they were fearing was is that somebody would come and steal the dead body. Now let me give you the testimonies that's found 115 on the Islamic book here. Okay, this is from Josh McDowell too. I think you'll love this. Power of God seen in the resurrection. Number one, the Bible in history states that Jesus was crucified. 
Cornelius Tacitus, Lucian of Samosota, and, and Mara Beresipion, all from uh, around 55 AD to 70 AD, all correlate the same history to us that the Jews crucified him. This is one of the most attested works in all of history. Jesus lived and he was crucified. Richard Bachman, Jesus and the Witnesses, one of the favorite books of Dr. James White in Muslim Debates, he states from E.P. Sanders that Jesus has about eight things that all secular scholars even agree on today, leaving out the miracles, the virgin birth, and all of that. And one of the definitive things even people of the Jesus Seminar agree upon is that he was crucified. Amen. Uh, the second thing is, I told you already, that the, the Roman guards were professional killers. The third thing that I was sharing with you is the, broke, uh, the Roman seal. And then now this comes into evidence. For the seal to be broken, which is number three, the broken seal, it would mean that these guards had now just broken the law of their, you know, commander with the pains of death. Any Roman soldier who had a, a, a prisoner escape from him on his duty would be sentenced to death. The steel symbolized the Roman government, and the rock would be impossible for a few people to move. It would probably take three or four, not just a few. So they would have to come and coerce the Roman soldiers to let them move this to the pains of their own death. Or they would have to kill the Roman soldiers and then do it. But neither one happens, right? The Roman soldiers aren't put to death, and yet the stone is rolled away. So how is the stone rolled away and the soldiers are not put to death? This doesn't, matter, uh, this, this doesn't line up any way except something miraculous happened. The next thing that we see is that the Roman guards flee. They now know, and the Bible records this, that their life is going to be held at stake. So they flee, and as they flee to their commander, the Jewish people show up, and now the lie is made that somebody has taken his body. And isn't that really what they still say today? A little bit different with the Da Vinci Code, but most of the people who want to say the resurrection was, you know, they'll say the resurrection was a hallucination is one thing that people were hallucinating. Or the other thing is that Jesus' body was just taken away and they were able to, to make a lie to say he was raised from the dead. But here we see that couldn't have happened. The next evidence is that he is attested to have been seen by over 500 witnesses. And what we see and when uh, people say the witnesses, they say, well... If you rule out all the other things that I said, Jesus swooning, coming back with black and blue eyes, they don't claim to see him that way, or that Jesus would have had somebody else crucified in his place, and then he shows up, they themselves would have known him to be a liar and a coward. That wouldn't have proved to them that he was God. So it had to be a literal crucifixion and a literal resurrection for him to be convincing to anybody around at that time, any of his disciples, right, for there to be a real story at that time. And none of the Jewish people believed that the Messiah would be crucified and resurrected because sometimes uh, people say, like when we were debating the Muslim, we draw a circle of prophecy and then we make all the things that happen fit into that circle instead of watching prophecy happen and then seeing it hits the circle. But none of the Jewish people expected the Messiah to be raised from the dead. So now here you have a Messiah raised from the dead. 500 witnesses see him. 
the best of psychology and people who have studied, the, you know, this paranormal activity of seeing hallucinations, people who have uh, lost loved ones, who are going through just disparaging times, have envisioned people or had hallucinations of them. It's very common after uh, people have died. They say it's the most common time. There are things that this violates that could never have happened to be true. Number one, it was a group. Most hallucinations always happen together uh, individually. It's never together. So here is the witness of many saying they saw it at the same time. It is highly unlikely unless they are on drugs and induced into some type of uh, mind brainwashing that many people would all hallucinate the same thing. But it even gets even better than that in favor of the Christian. Not only do they say and claim to have the same thing, but then they also claim that Jesus gives them these commands to go out and do these things. So now Jesus is not just saying, I'm here. He's saying, I'm giving you commands to go out. So there is this rational conversation that they're having in hallucination, which most of the times in hallucinations, the things that the people are imagining are things that bring them comfort. I love you. I'm with you. I'm not leaving you. Not go jump out in the middle of the train, go join the army, and go fight in Iraq. Jesus was saying to them, now go into all the world and tell everybody I'm alive. The same people that just crucified me, go tell them first. Go to the Jews. That's what they heard him saying, something that they never would have imagined themselves. And then the third thing, which we believe is the most convincing, is that under the pains of them being killed, Peter crucified upside down, Paul being beheaded who saw Jesus on the road to Damascus, uh, Thomas himself being speared, uh, the other disciples being beheaded, James, brother of John, John being born of life. Did the Romans, because I studied, we, we studied the book of Romans here, did the Romans have a problem with Jesus being a God? Absolutely not. Did they even have a problem with Christians? Can you open this for me, please? Did they have a problem with Jesus being worshipped as God? No, so they didn't have a problem with Jesus being God, thank you, and they didn't have a problem with him being worshipped. What did they have a problem with? His resurrection and the supremacy that he demanded after that. Why did they want to shout the goddess of Diana all over Ephesus and all over... Um, the, the New Testament church, why were, the, why were the pagans so upset with Paul and the gospel preaching? Because they were not just saying Jesus is a God among many. They're saying because he rose from the dead and was seen among these witnesses, he is the most supreme God, and he deserves all the worship. And you find that over and over and over again in Paul's message that if he wasn't raised from the dead, it doesn't count from anything. I want to know Christ and him crucified. It's all about Jesus. And if you turn there with me right now, let's just go to, um, in closing, let's just go to the place where Paul actually quotes a, a reference to church history that predates him. So when I was uh, debating the Muslim, and he said, well, Paul, you know, changed Christianity, and everybody else just happened to follow him. Could that have happened? No, it couldn't have, because all these disciples were spread out all over the world. Our, their documents are found all over the world. Many different authors, you know, uh, at least 10 different authors in the New Testament. Could that have happened? No. But where do we see some of the evidence in Paul's writing himself? In 1 Corinthians um, chapter... Chapter, um, what is it? No, not 15. Which, which chapter is it? Uh, Jared, do you have it? Yes. Which one? 
Okay, it is 15. I thought it was, but uh, I couldn't see here. Okay, 15-3. Look at what he says right here. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Going back to what he said he preached. But Paul said, I received it. Three times Paul gives us evidence that Christianity preceded him in the death, burial, and resurrection as Jesus as the Son of God. Three different times. What's the one in Philippians? The Carmen Christi, the hymn to Christ. He was God manifested in the flesh. You see it in the NIV kind of placed as a psalm. It's a hymn that comes before Paul. Most scholars, even secular Bartermen, believe this comes before Paul. What's the other one? First Timothy chapter 3.16. For he was manifested in the flesh, you know, and goes on from there. That is put into the NIV to look again like a hymn this predates Paul and this one right here is the has the most evidence to have predating Paul so Paul could have never influenced the people to believe this when he himself says I already received this when I became a Christian you shall get excited about that he said for I received what I received I passed on to you of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. See, at the same time, most of whom are still living. He even calls the reader of that day, around 60 A.D., to say, go and ask them yourself. What boldness right here that he says. Most of them are living till this day, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James then to all of the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. And I could continue on with other evidences of the resurrection, the women coming to the tomb, which women's testimony could not be valid in court, and yet our Bible records the women coming to the tomb. And then also that when people re in the Gospels, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, the uh, Synoptic Gospels, when they record the resurrection and people say, well, there's some little contradictions here, this actually works in our favor because the accounts are not collaborated. If there was a collaborated story that the disciples were trying to force upon the people, Matthew would have made sure he had every single line of event perfectly in line with Mark, and Mark would have made sure he had it perfectly in line. But just the very fact that Matthew says, oh, this one showed up, but Mark said, this one showed up, and then we have to come back and kind of pull it all together to harmonize it actually shows that there was never a sense of collaboration of a false story being told especially not one made up by Paul. Are you all listening to me? Can you just open up your, uh, turn back to 1 Corinthians 2 as you stand to your feet, amen? Let us preach like how Paul preached. Lauren, would you come to the piano? Thank you. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Let's just worship him right now in closing. Lord, we just love you. We worship you today. We thank you for the cross, Jesus. We ask to be cross-eyed, God, to 
to see everything through the cross. Oh, Lord, we worship you. You deserve all the glory, all the honor. It's all about Jesus. We're here, God, in Chapel Bible College to learn to make you great. And the greatest lesson we can learn to make you great is to get out your way. Is to just glorify you. And even if the world calls us babblers, scavengers, oh God, it's a compliment because we preach your words. We don't preach the words of our own understanding of this culture, of this society. We preach your words. Your words, oh God. Oh God, which bring life to our soul. May the power of Jesus Christ be seen through our preaching. Now would you just ask the Lord to use you in the power and demonstration of the preaching of Christ and Him crucified. Come on, just say, Lord, use me. Use me, God. We learned last week, not many of us noble, not many of us wise, not many of us influential, but He chose us to purposely topple those things that are wise and influential so that no one boasts before God. Come on, go after God right now. Come on, 60 seconds. Don't wait for me. Go after Him. Ask God to make a great ministry through you, not for you. We're not trying to build churches for people, ministries for people. We're doing it for Jesus. So just ask Him to use you, to do it through you, for His glory. Jesus. Jesus, never let it get old, God. God, we repent, Lord, for the preaching of this nation, oh God, watered down, God, and without any power, God. Lord, not out of pride, not out of arrogance, but God, we just ask you to make us different. We want to preach like Paul, God. We want to preach like you. We want to preach like you. You've called us to be preachers, proclaimers of your good news. We just want to do it like you, with your power. You never preached without power. All the people knew you because of your message, and it was backed up with power. All the disciples had it backed up with power. 
Let it come through conviction to our hearers, even as it did in the Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards in the Second Great Awakening with the Methodists. Let it cause them to tremble in their sin and cry out for forgiveness. Let conviction fall upon even the hearers on the streets. We've seen it before, but we pray for more, God, that they would even fall on their knees. That we wouldn't even have to lead them in prayer, but their heart would cry out, Save me, Jesus. Cleanse me, Lord. That their own heart would cry out for redemption. Oh, that our services would be filled and marked by the power of the Spirit. Oh, that men would be convicted of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Oh, that men would be drawn to you. And God, use us, God, with signs and wonders, not that we may have spiritual trophies, but even as your servant right on Bonky said, that these would be just tools to get the work of the gospel done. Demons would flee in your name. The healing would come to the sick and the oppressed. Words of encouragement, supernaturally known by you, would come. Edification through prophecy. Gifts, O oh God, of healing. Discerning of the spirits. Oh God, we rely on you. We may be called babblers, we may be called fools. But we are servants of Christ. We are servants of Christ. Whether by life or by death, may we glorify you in all that we do. For your glory, for your kingdom to come. On earth as it is in heaven. We cry out, God, use us. In the name of Jesus. I'm going to try to honor the Lord and give you a break, but would you just hold your neighbor's hand and just pray for them before we leave that God would use them. Lord, just use one another. Use us. Give us, O oh God, the desires of your heart. Use us, God. Use us. Every person here is needed in your kingdom. You've called everyone, O oh God. And they rely not on their own strength, but the power of the gospel seen in the resurrection. We want the resurrection power, God. Just like Paul said, we desire to know you. To know you crucified. To know the power of your suffering. Oh, and the power of your resurrection. Not that we have it all yet. But one thing we do, we just forget what's behind us and we chase after you, God. We haven't arrived yet. There's so much more that you can do through us. There's so much more you can do through us, through Sue Ellen and the children's ministry at the Adopt-A-Block, God. There's so much more you can do through Jared and evangelism, God. Berto and Griselda, God, through Wednesday prayer meetings, Lord, and family nights, God. There's so much more you can do through Chris and Vanessa and Deanna and Wicker Park, God. There is so much more, God, you can do through Adam in the youth ministry, oh God. There is so much more you can do through Cynthia and the youth, God, in her gifts of helping, Lord. Lord, and through the gift of prophecy and ministry, 
worshiping God. There is so much more. Ellie and Leelani through the youth ministry, God, and the mission trips, so much more. And my wife and I, God, we haven't even seen it all, God. We haven't even seen half, God, so much more. Through Sid, God, so much more. The next verses say, No eye has seen, nor ear has heard what you have prepared. Oh, God, there is so much more. You're revealing your mystery of Christ in us. God, you're revealing it through us, God. We just want to know you more and make you known. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. If you believe there's more for Pastor Mike and in Triple C, can you say amen too? Praise God. Slap your neighbor high five and say, preach it like Paul.